The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. I feel all right now. Hey, I feel all right now. Do you feel like I do right now? Do you feel like I do right now? Motivated. Motivated. Sky high. Sky high. Rock steady. Rock steady. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I can do it. I can do it. You can do it. You can do it. Hey. Okay, we got a little bit ahead of ourselves and uh, hadn't taken it off cue, and it went ahead and played our blood pressure part of this to make sure everybody's heart's beating well. And before we get started with remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm, we're going to take out a minute to uh, remember those that have given the ultimate, as well as those that are on active duty, be it in the service or be it um, as an ENT or whatever first responder you might be. So we'll take out a minute and do that, and then we'll be back with Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm with our host, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Philip Forsberg. So we'll be right back. Thank you, and we do appreciate our veterans and all those that have served um, in the past and those that are serving currently, uh, whether they're deployed or just in their basic training or on active duty at a base. So we want to be known, and, wanna, and I want to take this opportunity, too, to, you know, we've had quite a influx of veterans letting us know that they're listening and they appreciate what we're doing and I want to thank all the veterans and those that have listened to the shows uh, that are spreading the word like mayonnaise on a slice of bread so with that let's turn to our host Philip Forsberg good morning Phil yes it's a splendid day so, with that, we're going to get right into remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And um, where would you like to go today with that? Well, um, you know, David, I shared with you that link, and I don't know if you were able to watch that. I did. Uh, I, I From stem to stern. And I'm going to ask, uh, if you would, post a link to that on, on the website. Uh, on this show's page, um, so people can see it. it when uh, those who are listening, when you see it, it it's a uh, it's sort of a documentary that was done by the uh, Army University. Uh, the first 
I'd ever heard of the Army University, but um, it seems to have been uh, specifically produced with the 1st Infantry Division uh, in mind and their uh, participation, documenting their participation in Desert Storm. And um, they uh, and it highlights uh, the Division Cavalry Squadron, which is uh, 1st Squadron, 4th Cavalry, uh, and affectionately named uh, One Quarter Cav, uh, because they're the first of the fourth. So uh, it's abbreviated with a one slash four. So they nicknamed them the Quarter Cav. And, uh, but uh, they have, uh, it really goes pretty well in depth into cavalry missions. Um, and it's very, uh, very interesting. Uh, you know, People need to know that we, we do have cavalry now, but they're, they don't ride horses primarily. Uh, I think in uh, Afghanistan, the special forces use some horses, but um, it, the idea of cavalry is uh, mounted uh, mounted combat, and it could be mounted on uh, the, the cavalry fighting vehicles, tanks, or even aircraft. Um, but the idea of the cavalry was, uh, it's, it's usually on the flanks of the perimeter of the unit and it is, uh, allowing the, uh, the main body of the force to deploy for combat, uh, appropriate to the threat. So, um, they do things like a screen mission or a guard mission or reconnaissance. Uh, security missions, um, and uh, it, it does a very good job of describing uh, the cavalry missions. And uh, there are a couple of allusions uh, in the in the video to uh, the first time uh, that we've been deployed like this uh, since World War II. And uh, you know, World War II was a classic force-on-force engagement. Um, Korea less so, um, Vietnam pretty much not, but, uh, when we got the Desert Storm, it was classic force on force. We haven't fought a battle, uh, like this since. Um, and, uh, anyway, they, uh, our forces were, uh, decisive and, uh, and, um, very effective. As you uh, probably know, we've discussed before that the entire ground combat phase of Desert Storm was 100 hours. And uh, and let me, Phil, let me let me interrupt you a second. Can can you uh, surmise the favorite portion of that uh, that I like the best, or I found the most interesting? And, and laughed at. And laughed at. Well, was it the, uh, was it the surrender of, uh, of the Iraqis? No, it was, uh, where they were about to blow away four camels. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, our, uh, our night vision systems are, uh, better now than they were. Uh, 
but you know we're you're looking at for heat signatures and the further away they are uh the more uh the the, the less detail you have and so of course we always wanted to engage at the maximum uh range of our ordinance or maximum effective range of our ordinance but the um the camels, uh, yeah, this, what we, uh, in the attack helicopter business used to call soft targets. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the other thing that I, I found quite interesting in, in watching it was, uh, first, the, uh, the number of times that the narration stressed the importance and how much dependency there was on our intel, be it ground or be it air, and uh, how important it was to have the intel, and they kept referring back to it. And the other thing was, is our magnificent M1A1 tank, I just, that's such a lethal force. Uh, yeah, the, the M1 is uh, is a state of the art. It's a quantum leap in uh, armored warfare, but uh, it's hard to know if if we're going to need that or if it's going to be obsolete by the time next time we go to armored warfare. Now, uh, lately they've been going to something called Striker, which is sort of like a large wheeled vehicle. Um, but it has uh, it, it has tank type main gun, and uh, it's it's fast and lethal. Uh, so the striker is kind of the new thing they've been using. And I mean, I say that it's probably at least twenty years uh, since uh, the striker came out. Probably wasn't uh, the striker. Um Initially, to combat IEDs, and it took the place of the the uh, normal APC, and because uh, the APC in in the Middle East wasn't really doing its job, it wasn't safely getting our soldiers from point A to point B. So they came out with the striker that. <laughs> Just the tires themselves must be three or four hundred thousand dollars a piece. <laughs> well, nothing in the Department of Defense is inexpensive, but uh, the uh, well, you may be thinking of the MRAP, uh, which is the uh, mine-resistant uh, ambush-protective vehicle, uh, heavily heavily armored trucks. Um, the, the striker kind of looks like a, a chopped down tank on wheels. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I was at Fort Leonard Wood, um, and took a t- tour of the striker right before it went, really before it went into service. And, uh, just, the, just the wheels on it are, I would assume pretty much impervious, and uh, the the wrap. I know what you're talking about, and I think it. I think it came after the striker, didn't it? 
Yeah. Um, as far as armored personnel carriers, I think we've pretty much gotten rid of all of the, uh, what we call the aluminum coffins, the, uh, M113, um, variant, uh, uh, or, or chassis with the, with its variations. There, they had a mortar, uh, one that would set up a 4.2 inch mortar inside of the, Armored personnel carrier. They had a command and control track. Uh, they had a flamethrower at one point. Um, but uh, that uh, that vehicle was uh, was no fun to ride in. Hmm. Uh, the seats were like a sort of a side mounted or sideways mounted uh, aluminum bench that had no seat belts and going over rough terrain. Uh, you know, we, we used to hang all sorts of tools on the, on the inside walls, shovels and, uh, various things. And, <clears throat> and when we'd go over terrain, you'd get tossed around in the back there, thrown on the floor, hitting the head with shovels, <laughs> uh, dropping from the wall. And of course, there's no visibility. You have no idea what's going on if you're not the driver. So, uh, you know, I, I can remember that. I probably got more motion sick in a uh, in a buttoned up M one one three armored personnel carrier than uh, than any other vehicle I've ever been in. And it had had more dust than Ford Hood. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I never rode in the one one three at Ford Hood. All my one one three time was at Fort Benning. Well, I'm sure Fort you got Ford. some. I'm sure it captured some of the Fort Benning dust. As well. <laughs> I just, yeah, was, we had plenty it, of that. it was like being in a, in a, a box of dust, actually, you know, for all practical purposes. <laughs> in a vacuum cleaner bag. Yeah. <laughs> that would work. And, uh, you were, you were anxious to have that back door open up just so you could get a fresh breath of air. Yeah. So you're you're familiar with the one one three as well. Oh yeah, and it and had you know, the it had the slanted uh, front end where we I had a um, first lieutenant that wanted to find out how many pine trees an APC can take down with that front end, <laughs> and he climbed a few. I'm I guarantee you. Well, going through infantry officer basic course, uh, had a friend, uh, named Pete and Pete had been assigned after the school. He was going off to the 82nd airborne division and, uh, he was going to be light infantry. And, uh, we did a two week mechanized exercise with the 113s and, uh, he did not get along well. With the, with the one M113. In fact, it, every time he drove it, I uh, had a propensity to throw a track, uh, to the point where we, uh, we nicknamed him Half Track. <laughs> <laughs> well, they would take on a lot, but, uh, they wouldn't take on everything. And, uh, uh, Light Arms Infantry, 11 Bravo. Yeah, I know uh, they, uh, the fellows that had used it in Vietnam, 
uh, told us you never want to ride inside of it. You can ride on on the outside of it, but uh, if the, the actual armor of it was actually aluminum and uh, 50 caliber rounds would go right through it. So um, they uh, they wanted a fighting chance to see uh, who they'd have to engage if uh, if somewhere were to fire them up. But that, uh, you know, they, they've named the, uh, their infantry fighting vehicle, uh, the, uh, the, the Bradley and, and the, the M1 tank. They've named the Abrams. I don't think any military hero, um, of any war wanted their name, uh, associated with the M113. So it always just was. Referred to by its nomenclature. Yeah, or lack thereof. Um, back to back to your uh, what you had sent me, and and I did watch it all. And it, uh, I think one of the biggest things I got out of watching it was just, you know, the the United States, and and I think this is the way it should be. Unfortunately, I'm not sure we have it today. But in the past, we kill flies with sledgehammers. And Hussein, if, if he had had any intelligence at all, whether it was him or his quote unquote intelligence, there was, there was feeding him information, he would have backed down before he ever backed up, you know? And, we just, I mean, just, just the logistics of moving, what, going from 10,000 uh, troops to a quarter of a million within days is just a wonder to me. And, uh, you know, the United States, like, like the infamous words of the Japanese, we have awakened the sleeping giant. And uh, once you get us riled and we start heading your way, you better duck and run. <laughs> well, I, you know, I think when the Japanese uh, says that, I don't know, was it uh, Yamamoto who's quoted as saying that? But at the time, who may have been a sleeping giant. But, uh, you know, in 1990, we weren't sleeping. Uh, you know, we were geared up to go, uh, as Slim Pickens would say, toe-to-toe with the Ruskies in nuclear combat. Um, so uh, we, we weren't asleep. We certainly were a giant, especially compared to his forces. But, uh, that, uh, you know, the one part of that film uh, that was... Uh, the saddest to me was the, the fratricide, uh, where some, uh, scouts with, uh, ground surveillance radar out, uh, in front, um, had, uh, were mistakenly engaged by Apache helicopter. Mm-hmm. And, uh, a, n- a number of them were killed. And, uh, I remember getting word of that, um, you know, while we were there, there, there had been fratricide. 
made me glad that uh, the only weapon system I carried on my aircraft was my Smith & Wesson Model 10 <laughs> uh, six-shooter, 38 caliber revolver. Um, we had not been modernized with the with the nine millimeter pistol, and of course, there was this uh, prevailing mentality that air crews shouldn't have automatic pistols because the the spent brass could jam in the controls. For some reason, they had the idea that we might might actually be firing from the aircraft a pistol from the aircraft. Uh, the kind of the silliest thing I ever turned, but. Um,
and that's something that happens to this very day. Uh, another thing I remember uh, General Kelly being asked repeatedly about uh, uh, our use of submarines and, you know, missile launching submarines in the area. Uh, you know, General Kelly, just, his comment was repeatedly, we don't talk about submarines. Uh, <laughs> there's a reason we call them the silent surface. There's a reason they go around underneath the water and uh, we don't care to let anybody know what we're doing uh, with those uh, submarines. But, uh, and then there was uh, the uh, reporters had come up with this idea that the Marines were going to do an amphibious assault along the coast of Kuwait, the vicinity of Kuwait City. And um, it was, uh, we, we knew through radio transmissions and other intel that, uh, that the Iraqis were, were terrified that the Marines would come ashore uh, and, uh, uh, you know, do that amphibious landing because uh, they, they were worried the Marines were going to take revenge on Iraq for the, uh, the bombing of the... Uh, Beirut uh, Marine Barracks there, and uh, that had happened in 1983. And uh, in fact, the Marines were just aligned sort of along the coastline to go straight up from uh, Saudi Arabia into, into Kuwait. But there were there were some uh, SEAL recovery units. Uh, the Navy had SEAL recovery units that were. Uh, that had these Zodiac boats that were uh, in warehouses along uh, the uh, uh, our airport in a hangar uh, at uh, King Fahd Airport and uh, I can recall looking in there and seeing these uh, these boats uh, you know special warfare boats what, what were they for apparently the SEALs did a couple of uh, a couple of uh, simulations of an amphibious assault along the coast that uh, kept the uh, Iraqis from noticing that the Marines were coming straight north up, up the coastline and not coming in from the sea. <laughs> um, and of course, the Marines were reinforced with the Tiger Brigade of the 2nd Armored Division. Uh, so if you see any footage of uh, of the Marines taking Kuwait City, Kuwait Airport with M1s. The Marines didn't have M1 tanks in uh, Desert Storm. Those were all supplied by the Tiger Brigade 2nd Armored Division. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was quite interesting to see uh, the, you know, the just way that uh, the, the press got it wrong and uh, we just kind of made hay with the, with their uh, errors and their feeding on their own rumors. Just uh, just the coordination of the different U.S. branches and uh, the mention yeah. of Schwarzkopf coming in and you know we just I 
What was the old, what was the old, old saying? Lean, mean fighting machine. And, uh, <laughs> that's, that's what the U.S. was. I don't, I don't have an idea of what we are today. Uh, I worry about that as a matter of fact, uh, that we may be too lean and not that mean. And, uh, but back in Desert Shield and Desert Storm, uh, Saddam bit off more than he could chew, more than he could handle. And Republican Guard or no Republican Guard, he couldn't handle, you know, how, how do you take on the 101st or 82nd Airborne or, or any of our tank units or, I just, we're just well coordinated or we were and I hope we still are well coordinated and, uh, don't mess with me. Yeah. Uh, I, I did a little looking, um, you know, there were about all told about 500,000 uh, U.S. troops, uh, deployed to, uh, Saudi Arabia and Iraq, Kuwait for the, for Desert Storm. There were, um, just in the army alone, 27, uh, over 27,000, uh, bronze star medals, um, given out, uh, or awarded, I should say. And, um, there were, uh, uh, only, according to my research, only 607 Purple Heart medals. Hmm. Uh, that we're giving out, which, uh, I'm very glad for. Oh, yeah. I'm glad we gave out many more bronze stars than Purple Heart. Oh, absolutely. Uh, let's stop here for a moment and take a break, and we'll be back with Phil right after a couple of messages. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. If you want the truth about politics, medicine, weapons, classic cars, and more, you'll want to tune in to America's Web Radio. You can listen to all of your favorite shows live at www.americaswebradio.com or on demand on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. That's www.americaswebradio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And again, I want to thank all of the folks, be they veterans or whoever it is that's spreading the word about America's Web Radio and our great veteran shows. We, uh, if you haven't listened to it, you a place for veterans, and that's with uh, veteran Doctor. Don Moeller. And if you suffer and you can't sleep 
because of PTSD, then you need, you've got to listen to that show. Dr. Muller has the answer for you and does it frequently for veterans from all over the world that uh, can't sleep at night because they have PTSD. So listen to that and uh, listen to all of our other veteran shows that uh, we know what it is to be a veteran and we respect everyone that's raised their right hand and protects and defends their flag, their country, and our Constitution. And we certainly support them. And, uh, you know, Philip Forsberg, uh, retired lieutenant colonel, um, takes up the fight all the time. By the way, I wanted to just mention that uh, Lee Greenwood is doing a thing called Adopt a Veteran. And uh, we're going to try to get with Lee. He's been on the station before, and we're going to try to get him back on and talking about Adopt a Veteran. And, you know, I guess the one thing that I am pleased about, Philip, is the fact that our veterans seem to be getting more respect today than they ever have. And I think that's fantastic. Yes. Well, I agree. Um, you know, they, uh, the veterans, uh, especially those who've served in combat, but all of our vets deserve our, uh, respect, but, uh, they deserve from our nation. Uh, a fulfillment of the promise that was made to them, uh, specifically that their, <clears throat> their wounds and illnesses and disabilities, uh, would be, uh, and compensated. And, uh, you know, uh, every time I help a veteran, especially a desert or a uh, Vietnam veteran file a claim, uh, related to Agent Orange, I think, you know, maybe, maybe if I can impress on our nation the, uh, the cost of doing this to our soldiers, that, uh, they'll stop spraying poison or exposing our, uh, troops to, uh, to these hazardous chemicals and conditions. Uh, so, uh, it's probably a good time for me, uh, David, to point out, uh, something, a provision that's been, uh, put forth in the PACT Act. Um, the PACT Act was passed last year. Philip, and, you're, you're uh, getting feedback, by the way. You've got your, uh, mic too close to a, to a speaker or something, but you're getting feedback. How now? Better. Any better? Yes. Okay. Um, the, uh, so the PACT Act was passed, uh, by Congress and signed into law about a year ago. And, uh, we're coming up on a very important, uh, date. Uh, if you, if you previously submitted for something that is a presumptive illness that's covered by the PACT Act, um, you need to resubmit, uh, and you need to resubmit by, uh, using a, uh, 
supplemental claim form, which is a VA form 20-0995, and make allusion in there to the fact that it's a PACT Act claim that's the reason it's supplemental. And that's if, if you're previously denied. If you weren't previously denied, but it's a condition you have that you want to claim, uh, it's a presumptive for, for, uh, PACT Act issues, then, uh, you need to use, uh, VA Form 21-526EZ. And, uh, but it's important that you get this claim filed by, with the VA, in the hands of the VA, no later than the 9th of August this year, which is coming up in less than two weeks, I think, um, you have to get it to the VA, uh, and if you, if you do get it to the VA within, by the 9th of August, then those claims will be paid back, uh, a year to the, uh, 10th of August of 2022. Uh, so you'll get back pay for that. Uh, anything submitted after the 9th of August, uh, the pay will start when they receive the claim or the intent to file. So, uh, you can't just file an intent to file by the 9th. You have to have a completed claim in, um, by the 9th of August, 2023. So, I highly recommend that, uh, our veterans that have claims with the PACT Act that they would go on, uh, and find themselves the forms or Contact the service officer with the uh, disabled American veterans or the uh, VFW or the American Legion or any of the veteran service organizations or contact the uh, Georgia Department of Veteran Service if you're uh, a Georgia resident or uh, whatever suffices for the uh, veterans uh, service organization by your state. Uh, in whatever state you may live. And I'd like to add that uh, finally, and I'm underlining finally, the National Archives that houses all of your military records, your DD-214s, uh, uh, all of your deployments, all of the information about when you were in the service is finally open again. And... Uh, if you've been missing your DD-214 or missing something, you can finally contact the National Archives. And I don't know how fast they'll get the information out to you, but at least it's open. And they're not going to say, well, we'll reopen after COVID two years later, you know. So, and I want to mention the fact too that, and, and you, you brushed by it a little bit, but we both know Dr. Don Moeller and what he's, he's fighting the VA because when you raised your hand and the government signed a contract with you and you signed a contract with the government was that if you were injured, they would take care of your whole body. And unfortunately, the VA over many, many years now have considered that uh, for some some reason or the other, your head's not attached to your body. 
particularly when it comes to dental care. They they will accept dental care, which is fill and drill, basically. But as far as oral health, the VA has no research, and they won't do anything as far as true, full-service oral health. And I want to salute, take my hat off to, and... Dr. Don Moeller, who is a dentist and an MD, is fighting a one-man battle, and we should all get behind him fighting this battle with the VA. And uh, it's just, it's been an amazing thing when our government won't honor their portion of the contract. And... Um, but he's pointing it out, and he's getting people on, finally, finally getting people to understand what he's fighting for. And it's for the two million people, two million veterans that are in dire need of oral. And that's like, you know, that's like taking your car in and saying, well, the only part of my car that's the car is the tires, so replace the tires. And not considering the air conditioning or the engine or the transmission or anything else. And that's not right, folks, and it hadn't been right for years. And we've got to get the VA to cover the whole body, which means oral health. So... Back to Desert Shield and Desert Storm, and I know there have got to be veterans from Desert Shield and Desert Storm that need the VA's help. Uh, yes. Uh, and, and I filed a number of claims for, uh, veterans from, uh, from Desert Storm and Desert Shield. Um, and the big thing in the PACT Act, uh, is um, well, they have certain Gulf War conditions, but a, a lot of it is these uh, these burn pits um, where they burned all sorts of uh, things from anything from human waste to uh, toxic chemicals, medical waste, um, and uh, plastics and asbestos or whatever, uh, and just sent them up into the air. In addition to all of that, uh, and you saw some of it on that video, David, were the uh, the oil well fires. You know, um, prior to the oil well fires in uh, 1991, there were <clears throat> um, there was, I could recall, coming back into uh, land at King Fod Airport, uh, it was a haze layer, kind of a, a dusty tan brown, uh, haze layer from about 8,000 feet to the surface. And, uh, but you know, you could see through it pretty well, but the, uh, after the oil well fires, that, that haze layer became sort of a, a gray black layer from, uh, about 8,000 feet to the surface. And, there were a couple of times when there were no clouds in the sky and I, I had to do instrument approach.
approaches in to get into uh, the airfield just because of the thickness of the uh, of the oil well smoke. And so <clears throat> those uh, who were deployed over there, even as far down as King Fod, which is a couple hundred miles from from the uh, the border with Kuwait, uh, it seems to me that uh, you know that the, the oil smoke was all the way down there. And, uh, and then of course many of our folks went up into Iraq and Kuwait and were subject to those, the smoke from, uh, those fires. Uh, I will tell you in looking at the, uh, and trying to find some YouTube videos that would refresh my memory about Desert Storm, I found one was about the air war and, uh, talked about uh, Highway 80, which was the main road going north out of Kuwait, by which the uh, the Iraqis um, wanted to evacuate back out of Kuwait into Iraq. Um, and uh, <clears throat> the uh, one of the things they said was that a, a J-STARS aircraft, which is the uh, Joint Services Targeting target acquisition and reconnaissance system. Um, it, it was not an operational platform at the time. It was in its experimental phase, but they sent it over there anyway. They said, "Oh, J Stars had found the Iraqis were evacuating along Highway 80." Well, uh, I'm sure that the party line that the J Stars. Uh, made that identification, but I can tell you, uh, JSTAR has provided about six hours of, uh, coverage each day, uh, after the, uh, ground war started. And, um, our OV-1 Mohawks provided 24 hour coverage for the entire, uh, from the start of the, uh, air war, uh, to the, uh, the ceasing of, uh, hostilities. And uh, the, your OB-1 Mohawks were the ones that found them evacuating up Highway 80. And it was interesting what they did. They went in uh, <clears throat> with uh, A-10s, I believe, and and they destroyed the lead vehicles and the trail vehicles of this huge convoy, and uh, thus kind of containing uh, all these others along the road. And a number of these units, uh, basically hung a left turn out into the desert, uh, and we're going to go cross country to get up, uh, into Iraq. But, uh, as they scattered out a lot in the desert, um, we went out and, and found them. Uh, on that particular day, I called in 66 targets, uh, to the, uh, to the joint, uh, to the uh, Air Force's, uh, Airborne uh, Battlefield Control Center, ABCCC, um, and uh, and they were very hungry for targets because as I would pass the targets to them, they would hand them off and assign them to various uh, fast movers to go out and neutralize the targets. And uh, one of the targets we found was a uh, multiple launch rocket battalion uh, BM-21 Soviet, uh, 
multiple launch rocket uh, thing in it. Um, the report I got back was uh, that the secondaries were quite spectacular when they neutralized that one. Hmm. I imagine the fireworks were were spectacular. And uh, I guess one of the fa- favorite for all is the Warthog, the A1. And uh, people love... Yeah, A10, I'm sorry. But people love that. And how does that sucker fly? Well, who cares? It flies and it... Boy, does it take a load. And leaves the load behind. Yeah, I think uh, the thing that impressed me the most uh, about the A-10 was the amount of uh, anti-aircraft fire that it could absorb and continue to fly. Uh, they had one of them, because uh, they were they were assigned at, at King Fod where I was, and uh, one, one of the fellows come home with, with an A-10 and, uh, of course, single pilot aircraft. And, uh, he knew he'd been hit, but he didn't know the extent of his damage. And, uh, he pulled into, uh, parking and he couldn't believe it. His, one of his vertical stabilizers has been almost completely shot off. <laughs> and, uh, they, uh, <clears throat> uh, he, he turned white when he took a look at the, uh, and the post flight saw what damage had been done to his aircraft. So, but he made it back safe with it. The number, uh, number of A-10s were lost over there. So in that situation right. where he was able to get it back to base, would they take it and repair it? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the A-10, uh, well, you know, during, during Vietnam, uh, they, uh, they could, Congress wouldn't provide money for more aircraft, uh, but they would provide all sorts of money for repair parts. So if they only had the data plate from the aircraft, they'd stick it in an envelope and mail it to Corpus Christi Army Depot in Texas. And they'd build a new aircraft around it. So, uh, <laughs> I'm sure the same thing with the A-10. They weren't, you know, they closed down the A-10 uh, production line, uh, I think, in 1978, 1980, maybe. So they weren't making any more. I mean, there was no, there was no production line for the A-10. So, uh, and I think <clears throat> in Desert Storm, they realized uh, just how valuable that aircraft is in terms of uh, close air support. Um, It has uh, the amazing firepower that it has. Just, just incredible. And uh, if I were the enemy, I'd certainly hate to see an A-10 coming towards me. Yeah. Um, and, of course, the rounds that it fired were 30-millimeter uh, uh, depleted uranium rounds. So... And the reason they used the depleted uranium not not for its radioactiveness, but for its uh, uh, for its density, um, 
much more dense than uh, than lead, uh, and of course, very expensive uh, that ammunition. But uh, like you said, uh, you know, you, the Department of Defense is uh, is not very uh, frugal. <laughs> Everything costs a lot of money. That's because we have the very best. And when necessary, we we send out the very best. And uh, you you don't want to go into battle wondering if something's going to fail, or if the enemy. And I think this is what you found in Desert Storm was the fact that uh, the Russian tanks were no competition to our tanks. We ran circles around them. And this went down in history without question. So... And I think, you know, um, trying to be modest, but I would say that the uh, subsequent folding of the tent on the Soviet Union uh, so precipitously after uh, Desert Storm the uh, I think is evidence that uh, so I, I, I would credit the Desert Storm conflict with having put an end to the Soviet Union um, because they knew they, you know for all their trying they they just could not outclass the United States and what we were doing. The only one, the only country that can is China because they copy us anyway. <laughs> well, you know, we have to try to stay on top of on the top of our game, and uh, so that's the you know eternal, eternal vigilance is price of freedom. And so uh, I'm very grateful for those who are serving now, now that my time is over. Well, this is, uh, you know, like we we say many times during this show and many other shows, that if you see someone that's wearing a cap, I served on the USS whatever, and you're in the airport, the train station, the bus station, wherever you might be, buy he or she a drink or even a meal. If you're in the airport or wherever you might be and you see somebody in uniform, definitely buy them a meal and thank them for their service and thank them for what they're doing today. Because this is, we live in a, in a world that is overconfident, and you know our men and women that are serving today, they're up against it, and at any time they could be called upon to go around the world to who knows where and to who knows what. Uh, it's sitting out there. It's just a matter of whether it will ever come about or not. So. With that being said, it's about time to fold our, fold our 
ponchos up and go back for another week. All right, David. Uh, but I will say uh, I've sent you a link for uh, this uh, uh, record uh, retrieval from the archives you just put together. So I wish you'd put that link up um, on the website for folks to, to get their military records. Absolutely. I'll uh, when I get off the air, I'll see that it it goes up, and uh, we appreciate all that you develop. And you know, I I would have no idea how to descri- describe somebody like Philip Forsberg. He's doing things in the background that he'll never get credit for. But he's doing them, and it's all to help you. So, with that being said, we're going to put the plug in the jug. We'll be back next week with more of Remembering, and people, please remember Desert Shield and Desert Storm and all of our wars and our brave people that have fought in them. We'll be back. You're listening to America's Web Radio. More to come. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.